0: Welcome to the Navigating Hollywood podcast. My name is Alan Wolf, and I'm a filmmaker, author, and game creator. My new book, based on my upcoming movie, The Sound of Violet, is coming out September 21st. I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Navigating Hollywood encourages and equips entertainment professionals to live relationally and spiritually holistic lives. If you work in entertainment, be sure to visit NavigatingHollywood.org to see how you can get involved. Today, we're joined by Elizabeth Davis and Jordan Richard. Elizabeth is an actress whose debut on Broadway landed her a Tony nomination. She has also appeared on many television shows, including New Amsterdam, Law & Order, and Blue Bloods. Jordan is a television news director for NBC and ABC, Welcome, Elizabeth and Jordan. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. Thanks for being here. Elizabeth, I've heard that if you're an actor living in New York City and you haven't appeared on Law & Order, at minimum playing a dead body, it's a warning sign that there's no hope for your career. (laughs) Now, you went beyond that with a guest starring role, but is there any truth to that?
1: That's funny. Yes. I Well, there were quite a few years where I had heard that, and I had not been on the show, so I thought, I guess I'm going to have to throw in the towel. Um, (laughs) And and, you knew you
0: made it once you appeared on Law and Order.
1: Yeah, yeah. So thankfully, Warren Light let me uh, show up a time or two. So... (laughs) Have
0: some some lines,
1: yes. Yes, yes. I guess
0: I'm an (laughs) actor. That's right. (laughs) A New York actor specifically. Yes. That's great. And you received a Tony nomination as Best Featured Actress for your role in the Broadway show once. The production received 11 Tony Award nominations and won eight, including Best Musical, Best Actor, and Best Book. And it won the Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album. That's
1: huge. Can you talk about your journey getting there? I'm an extremely small-town girl from Texas who just happened to grow up playing the fiddle. The only other musical I had done before, once the musical on Broadway, was Texas outdoor musical drama in the Palo Deer Canyon. It was just one of those things where it was the, the right skill sets kind of all combined. you just been working for it your whole life, and you didn't know it. So the show definitely shaped my aesthetic. Since then, it has given me, you know, endless gifts beyond just the show itself. An affirmation that sounding like myself is okay. So it was a really gorgeous journey that landed me a hip surgery. I blame it on kicking the cajon too many times while playing the fiddle at the same time. It was a very physically demanding show, as they all are. It was a really wonderful experience. And you said that
0: show helped you find your voice.
1: Yeah. I never imagined myself in musical theater. That was not something I was interested in. I I got both my BFA and my MFA in classical theater performance. And I came to the city simply to do straight theater and got here and hadn't opened up my violin since, uh, I don't know, undergraduate. But I'd played since I was three. I quickly learned that there are significantly more auditions for musical theater than there are straight plays. So I just started singing and playing, which I grew up doing. If you don't use your voice and lean into the uncomfortability and you don't decide that you're willing to embarrass yourself 40 mm-hmm. times over, there was definitely a muscle of overcoming embarrassment. All artists do with that. If you're not used to embarrassing yourself, God bless. It's just the walk of shame every day. And then you realize it's not the walk of shame. It's the walk of courage. Mm-hmm. It's the walk of sustainability. And, and that's where I think the muscles of, of staying power are, are really created.
0: Did you have to develop that sustainability after just going on oodles of auditions?
1: Yes. And also after the Tony nomination, there was this expectation that I was a certain thing, that I was now minted as a musical theater performer. And that was terrifying because I never asserted myself as such. And so I was deeply thankful for the nomination, Hmm. but I was then in an identity crisis of, of who who am I as a creative and what am I saying about myself? And so I left Hmm. the show. I left the show to go do off Broadway Brecht. Whoa. (laughs) Because I returned to, I'm looking at a show poster of
2: Christopher Lloyd,
1: Christopher Lloyd. There he is the show. I left Broadway to do Caucasian chalk circle with Christopher Lloyd getting what an eighth, my dear husband again, like Babe, I'm going to leave Broadway and the good money, and I'm going to go do off-Broadway, and I don't know when when I'm going to have another job after that. And he's Hmm. like, okay.
0: Oh, wow. What went through your mind when she told you that, Jordan? A little bit of terror.
2: When you're a theater artist or an actor in general, things are up and down. And so we had kind of just set up our life to live off of my income. And so the Broadway income was a nice bump for us, I know that my wife, if she's not creatively fulfilled, she's not going to be happy. And so I just had to say, you know what, babe, whatever you feel uh, right in your soul about doing, go for it, because I'm confident in your ability and your skills and that another Broadway show will come along whenever the time is right. And so uh, we just sort of, thankfully, she kind of brought me into the decision and we've made it together.
0: What happened that made you realize that wasn't, For you, that wasn't the direction you wanted to go
1: in. Well, I'll say this I have come full circle to accept that this is a path that is a part of my journey. Hmm. I had to go discover what it was for myself rather than being forced into suddenly this mold that I didn't understand. So I went to Brecht to remind myself who I was as an artist. And then the process of writing started for me. I guess in April of next year, I'll start my next Broadway show. And it's, it's been that long between once and I'm doing the 1776 revival on Broadway. But there's been so much work in between there that I'm really proud of that probably significantly less people have seen that has cemented who I am as an artist, what I want to say, what my aesthetic is, and more, most importantly, why I'm saying it. And so I think that if I had not gone through that cycle Was painful, let's be honest. There was a there was a a lot of pain involved of rebuilding, you know, you get to this pinnacle, and you have a choice. You can either reach a pinnacle and you can stay in comfort in that pinnacle, or you can choose to launch from that pinnacle and you fall and learn to fly in a new way. Those are your options, and so I think that there was a lot of like certainty in that. I was certain in why I was making this decision. I was uncertain in what it would look like getting to the end of that. And I think that that, I mean, that is just what life and faith looks like is, is just the fall of grace is constantly not knowing, not knowing, and especially in a creative life, you, you can't become a mercenary or you stop being creative.
0: Did the people in your life think you were a little nutty for making that decision?
1: I'm sure there were plenty of people that did. At the same time, I'd been in the show. I developed the show out of town, off-Broadway, on-Broadway for a year, gone through the Tony nomination cycle to stay. I wasn't learning anything about myself as an artist. We didn't have children. We were at a point in our life where making, taking big risks like that, financial risks, was okay. I wouldn't make the same decision again and I would say that to other artists too. This is a project by project decision that you know you you, you can't expect a cookie cutter decision making process in art. It just doesn't work like that.
0: And you said next year you'll be appearing in the revival of 1776.
1: Yes, playing Thomas Jefferson. Don't you look at me and think Thomas Jefferson? <laughs>
0: I've heard of colorblind casting. I guess this is genderblind <laughs> casting?
1: That, that, is, that is the intent. It is founding mothers, yes. So. Without,
0: without giving away too much, right? Yeah,
1: there's a, there's that, a
2: take that the director has conceived that would make it make sense.
0: Wow, okay.
1: We were actually in rehearsal when the pandemic hit. I mean, I'm supposed to be on Broadway right now.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow.
1: <laughs> we still have it in our family calendar. I haven't deleted it. I'm like, <laughs> I just want to remember.
0: If <laughs> so
2: it would have happened too soon, it might've gotten shut down, not had the funding to restart. You, oh, just never, you just wow. never know.
0: That's incredible so to think about. There's
2: so many variables that go into getting something to that place that mm. the timing might've saved the
1: show. And when does it open next year? We will go into rehearsal in spring and it will develop in Boston at ART when once was created. And then it will come back to Broadway and be in roundabouts summer, fall season.
0: You have been on quite a journey since you first appeared on Broadway that's then taking you back to Broadway.
1: Jordan has been so encouraging of me exercising my voice the whole time when I thought that I did not have a voice that was worth doing anything with and my husband has been steadfast and now I have a new album coming out of new music that I've written and I've sung. So this guy, it's all this guy.
0: (laughs) Jordan, how did you develop that kind of encouraging muscle toward your wife? I think when
2: you love somebody, you uh, are the the first fan, right? And you appreciate all the things that they might not even appreciate about themselves because we all carry this heavy burden of self-consciousness and self-doubt. And when you have a supportive spouse, they're the person being your cheerleader, championing you. She does the same thing for me, even when I don't feel like I've got that wind in my sails. I'd seen Elizabeth, whether it was around the house, in the shower, at church, hitting notes that I'm like, where did that come from? Why are you afraid to do that in front of a professional? Because you do it around the house and it blows me away. She had always expressed a little bit of this uncertainty, of course, when you you can do that in the house, but doing that in front of a casting agent who's a professional, who sees professionals every day, I just wanted to push her out there and say, show the world these beautiful gifts that you have that I get to see, but I want everyone else to see them too and to hear them. Seeing her do the musical once was something that I knew was there all along because I'd known her since college. And I'd heard her sing since college and play violin and do you express herself in all these creative ways that I was just waiting for the rest of our city and, and the audiences that would fill the houses to to appreciate like I've become I'd come to appreciate.
0: So Jordan, what was it like for you the first time you saw her on stage in the show? It was incredible because it's a special show for us
2: outside of it being her first Broadway show. One of the first dates I took her on was to see the movie once. At the time, neither one of us would have thought this is going to be a Broadway show that one day you would be in. To see these stars align, it was so providential in a way that there were, there were a lot of tears. It was, just, it, it was just something that we couldn't orchestrate for ourselves had we written the script.
0: And Jordan, you work in television news. For many of us, you know, after being deluged with all kinds of bad news over this past year, there are just moments, you know, where you just feel like you want to take a break, turn off the news, get distracted Mm -hmm. by something else. But you didn't have that choice. What's it like seeing all the news all the time? It can be overwhelming,
2: especially if you don't have a safe place to go to. If you don't have someone to dump some of your emotional baggage on that you carry from work, especially now that we have a child, I think I carried a lot heavier than I did before. Especially when you hear stories of children and things that might happen, and yeah, it's it's difficult. I think people in the news industry develop sort of like comedians that sick sense of humor because it's your protective skin that you put on. And so when I'm in the control room and I'm calling a show, sometimes we kind of make. Jokes, not off of very serious stuff, obviously, but just the mundane things that happen because we've got to keep sort of that light spirit in the control room, or else we're going to be overwhelmed with grief. Mm. At the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know what was going on, and so I sent them off to to Texas where they could be out in the middle of nowhere. Elizabeth and our son Josiah, who was two and a half almost, and just spent six or seven weeks by myself working thirty days in a row at times with like a day off and then another 20 something days in a row, just covering this story that no one really knew what was going on, but we knew it was bad and we knew it was particularly bad in New York city being sort of the, the the American epicenter of the pandemic. There's a lot of uncertainty at that time.
1: He was designated to be the survivor for the NBC New York control room. And in case there was an outbreak in the newsroom, he was put on a different floor he was going on the subway every day at the height of the pandemic into his designated survivor control room to make sure that New York city was receiving the news of what was happening in the epicenter. Wow. He was holding it down for oh my New York gosh.
2: city. <laughs> yeah. But then we reunited and we saw each other again and, and things got better. And,
1: <laughs> and, and, we're, and
2: we're, we're, here we are, uh, you know, I mean, everybody's, Everybody's experienced, I feel like, some sort of of uh, hit from from the past year and a half.
0: What do you do as a television director for the news?
2: In a live control room, you could probably equate it kind of like the conductor of an orchestra. You've got cameras, you've got graphics, you've got video, you've got hosts or uh, news anchors and reporters and audio. And then you've got the director who is helping composite all of these things on the air to make the stories make sense in the same way that a conductor says, you know, pulls all the instruments together to bring the piece together. I work with the producers and we kind of come up with a vision of how they want to tell the stories, the news stories, or whatever it might be. I composite all of that on the air with graphics and video and talent and mm. music and voices.
0: Whatever you do as you're directing the news is seen by millions of people. Has anything ever went terribly wrong and you just hope people wouldn't notice?
2: How many times? I mean, I don't want to spill all of my dirty laundry out here, but (laughs) there was one time I kicked Lester Holt and the nightly news broadcast off of the air. And I was just thankful that I kept my job. I hit a button that rolled a commercial in the middle of their show. Only in the New York market, thankfully. Only in the New York market. So I'm sure he was mid-teleprompter read, or they were in the Uh. middle of a news package. And here I am, a a few floors away. I was recording something that was going in the taxi broadcast for local news. Mm. And normally, when I fade to black, I press this button, it rolls a commercial. But this was just a record for taxi. But muscle memory kicked in. When I faded to black, I pressed the button. It automatically played a commercial on the air at the moment and kicked Lester Holton, and the NBC nightly news broadcast off. So not my finest moment, but you know, you learn from these things and, and when they ask you back the next day, you go, oh, I think, I think I'm okay. I think my job is safe at the moment.
0: There've been a lot of accusations that the TV networks create fake news or are biased in what they report. What's been your view of that from the front lines? The short
2: answer is absolutely they are, and that's just human nature. you know we're flawed people as much as I like to view myself as a down the middle independent, moderate person. My biases sink into everything and mm. and so we all see the world with a specific worldview, and that affects the the stories the producers and journalists that I work with tell the the stories that they choose to focus on you tell the stories that you want to tell and there are stories that you say yeah that's not so interesting to me and uh, unfortunately that happens i think right now we just live in a time where we've become so politically divided we're not realizing the the repercussions of that small bias And that small bias has become a large bias over years and years and years and years of people feeling like their job is to be the arbiter of truth in a news industry. Mm -hmm. And so, especially coming out of the political climate that we're in, it's just, it's toxic. And I've seen it firsthand where there have been opportunities to, whether on the left or the right, I've tried to get in the ear of a news anchor and say, hey, do you realize what you just said was completely... Misrepresented what this political figure said, and he goes,
0: Hmm.
2: Oh gosh, live television, it's already out there, the damage is done.
0: Wow,
2: wow. News anchors and journalists are flawed people, there's not a lot of grace in the current Hmm. moment that we're living in, and so we would all do ourselves a lot of good to give people grace and then try to assume the best from people instead of assuming the worst because I think that's what we're. We're doing a lot of right now. It's become a completely commercialized industry because, look, the reason I get a paycheck is because we have commercials on air. And so, unfortunately, if you're putting on a very moderate, lame, middle-of-the-ground broadcast, you may not have people watching, which is – I don't work at Fox News. I've never directed at MSNBC. But I think we can all agree that those are two extremes. Uh, mm. And and I think those people know who their audience is and what their audience wants to hear. There was a time where CNN was a little more down the middle and it didn't do well for the ratings, not that their ratings are doing well right now, but they know the base that they're playing to at this point and how to fight for the most eyeballs. And unfortunately, it's not moderation and giving grace and playing it safe.
0: There have been such a string of bad news headlines. I know my wife and I, as we've talked, have said, "Oh, well, can't wait till we don't see the string of bad headlines." But then, once those headlines go away, other bad headlines take their place, Mm -hmm. and you know it's just because they they want to keep that addiction cycle of what's going on. You you know, you constantly want to read the news to find out what's going on. Oh no, this thing happened. This thing could happen. This could be really bad. So I can see how that is can be really driving the news cycles. Sure.
2: I was just reading this book called Get Your Life Back recently by a guy named John Eldridge. And he talks a little bit about how we weren't as individuals, as beings with a soul. We were not created to know all the troubles of the world. We were only created to really be able to take in or carry the the weight of our community struggles on our shoulder. In Mm -hmm. our current, you know, slice of a couple of blocks of Manhattan or wherever it might be. And now we're in this place where we have so much information being thrown at us mm. that it can feel like there's just chaos going on all the time when really this has been there's been chaos throughout the world for centuries. We just hear about it now because we have information in our hands. A lot of the things that are being flagged by all these news organizations are the most extreme stuff.
0: You're both working in very challenging fields where a lot of people would like to work, but few are able to. What are some key things that you feel like have helped get you where you are today?
1: Failure is your friend. You can't care if you're famous. You can't care. The work must be what you care about. You have to care about telling the stories. You have to care about the craft. And also I think the balance of family is really important. I definitely have gone through my identity crisis, creative crises, which, you know, we've kind of alluded to. I think the pandemic was a good moment to just say, oh, well, okay, I'm not on Broadway right now. And I thought I was supposed to be, okay, well, I'm not shooting that film. That, that's not where my identity is. Mm-hmm. I'm not rocked to the core. And, and so therefore I somehow feel more stable to tell more adventurous stories I feel as if I have more staying power because I just care a little less than perhaps I I did before. Maybe that's just aging. But I do think it is a bit of a secret. It's just, you, you bust your tail over and over and over. Not because you're just endlessly, ceaselessly striving. It's going back to this idea of saying, where are our craftsmen? Know your craft. Know your theater history. Know who the artisans were. Break apart your script. Be an actual craftsman.
2: Alan, as a filmmaker, you can probably attest to this. People are chasing fame because they see the surface product and don't see all the hard work that's gone into that product under the surface. And and to be fair, social media has created these celebrities, you know, reality TV, people that are famous for just being famous. At some point, you have to just keep creating and create for the sake of creation not for the sake of this is going to make me famous or this is going to make make me money or going to make other people happy i mean even in the field that i'm in i still have plays that i'm writing and short films that i'm writing and and elizabeth is constantly you know she just finished the album as she said but she has like three other plays that are in the works that people are wanting to produce mm. and and none of that is is paying the rent right now right <laughs> yeah. but it might no. It might three years from now or two years from now, but it wouldn't if we didn't prioritize just the creation of things.
1: As a family, we try to say this is not a means to an end, but it's simply the end in and of itself. If this never goes any further, whatever it may be, there is a purpose and a meaning to mm. this thing, and we offer <clears throat> it as our gift. And that can be the end. You know, if it has another life, if it ends up being a means to an end, great.
0: When you look back at your choices and life in your career, is there anything that you wish you had done differently?
2: We're people of faith. And so we believe that God has a plan for our lives, even though it might not look like what our plan for our life would look like. I came to New York City the, the last semester of my college career. And I had an internship with a film director and an internship at Good Morning America. And I thought, No way is Good Morning America going to pan out and film is where I'm going. And the doors just kept flying open at Good Morning America. That was my first job. I was there for five years. And I look back and I go, I can't believe I have been able to live in New York City, you know, allowed me to have enough money to to date Elizabeth, to put a ring on her finger. Cause if I would have been pursuing, <laughs> an
1: expensive date.
2: no, I'm just saying if I would have been able, if I would have been pursuing film at that time in my life, we probably would have missed each other.
1: I can't exactly pinpoint regrets in my life. I don't think that I have regrets, but I think what I, Maybe in saying that is me saying, I cannot judge the former version of myself for not knowing the things I know now. Hmm. Instead of regretting things, I think choosing to live in a continuous cycle of learning and growing in grace from the new version of myself.
0: Hmm. And you mentioned your spiritual journeys. Can you tell me what your spiritual journeys have looked like?
2: My grandfather was a Christian evangelist, Baptist, evangelist, Mexican, man who traveled the country.
0: That was a lot of words. He was (laughs) what again?
2: (laughs) He was a a Christian evangelist, which means he traveled around the country to different churches all over preaching what they would call revivals. This was like, you know, 60s and 70s and 80s. Wow.
0: Okay. Like tent revivals? Some tent revivals.
2: Yeah, those Mm. sort of things. Wow. Probably less sweaty than you see in the movies. I'm just thankful that there was a legacy of faith in my family that I was able to stand on that helped shape my character at a young age. I feel like Christianity has always been the North Star that has led me on different paths to where I was going. When I came to New York City, I believe it was God that it was opening doors for my career to continue going in the way that it went, even though it it wasn't at the time the way that I was expecting it to go. But it allowed me to set up this life in New York City and and reconnect with Elizabeth and and for us to get married. And and so yeah, even now, you know, heavily involved in our church, it's just something that's very central to our family.
0: So it sounds like from an early age faith became part of your journey. Has it just been steady ever since?
2: As steady as it can be. Naturally, once you fall in love with Christ is what happened to me. Those disciplines of faith that I was trained up in by my mom and my dad, eventually when I fell in love with Christ, those became real and flourished into an authentic outpouring of how my faith expressed itself in my life.
0: And what are disciplines of faith? You know, going
2: to church on a weekly basis, reading the Bible and finding out more of what I actually believe, prayer, things of that nature that, you know, when your parents talk about it, you go, why are we doing this? But the more and more you do it, the more you understand why you do it. And then a light turns on in your head, I would say more in your soul where you go, oh, I get it now. Christ was the most amazing loving person that ever walked the face of the earth. And if I want to try to love on those around me, then it would only make sense that I would follow him and I would try to love on people the way he loved on people, which was all the way to the cross and back.
0: Can you describe your spiritual journey, Elizabeth?
1: I also grew up in a, in a very devout family, and devotion to that has been sustaining. As an artist, oftentimes, actors in particular feel that there's a disconnect between what we do and what a Christian faith is. And what what my faith journey has been is discovering actually the fusion of those two things and being so surprised by that over and over. Mm being so pleasantly enamored by, by God, the artist. I'm actually working on a book called Incarnational Acting, a so-far memoir. I was doing this course, and we were talking about Kyperian sphere sovereignty, and Abraham Kuyper was a theologian. Just one specific class on Kuyper's ideology on art, in essence, was about the division between sacred and secular, and saying that that is a misnomer. There, there is no division between sacred and secular art. And I just remember bawling, just weeping, feeling as if someone had cracked my life open. I'm interested in telling stories that depict all of the huge range of mm. emotions of human beings and discovering that that is a holy task, that God is not going to smote me for telling a human story. Mm. And that release, though it seems sophomoric, is something that I live in the freedom of every day. I tell human stories, and God loves humans. That's the thesis for what my faith journey has been, discovering God the artist.
2: Elizabeth also talks about the idea of Christ being God who put on flesh, stepping into Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think Dr. Timothy Keller says it. I, I remember him in a conversation once saying, actors are like Jesus in that they make the words flesh. And it being the most profound thing anyone could have ever told me, that there is something holy about stepping into the shoes of another person Mm -hmm. to represent them, to give them life, to breathe life into their story, and to really put flesh on the words that we're speaking. It is a holy task to incarnate a character. Mm -hmm. So that's what keeps me in this industry too, of feeling like this is a call to be empathic, to also to love characters as much as God loves. Okay, I don't agree with this character I'm playing. I don't have to agree with them. I'm not called to agree with the character I'm playing. There's a division between Elizabeth the person and Elizabeth the actor or the character. That was also a very hard one lesson. I
0: imagine there must be a lot of skepticism toward faith in New York City. <laughs> How do you navigate that?
2: She just I, loves on people and then at some point when people get a little inside closer to her and get to know her a little better and then they find out that she's a person of faith. Sometimes it's shocking to them, but a lot of times it's not shocking because they were like, oh yeah, that makes sense because of the way that you're kind and loving and gracious and accepting and welcoming.
1: As people who believe that God loves us and came to redeem the world and like give us a second chance at life, there's a beautiful, easy confidence
0: Elizabeth, what advice do you have for someone who wants a career as an
1: actor? The logistics may be different now for someone with the resources and with the social tools that we have now. And I don't want to pretend as if the logistical journey would look look the same to mine. What would translate is being really well read, read as many plays as you can, read as many scripts as you can learn the players in your field. listen to cast albums, watch films. I think it goes back to being curious about the form, finding a niche. Like for me, the violin opened up a really specific pathway that I mm-hmm. wasn't expecting. If you also like are an incredible figure skater or also an incredible... She says
2: that because I'm an incredible figure skater.
1: Yes. Like trombone player. I don't know. But what, you know, is there a way that you can create a fusion or a trifecta of skill that makes you really unique and special? Right. Those intersections are like inflection points where things, exciting things happen.
2: There's 8 million people in New York City And 7 million of them are actors. (laughs) And so if there's one way that you can distinguish yourself from another person, just to make yourself stand out in a casting call, don't Mm -hmm. be afraid to lean into those things.
1: Yeah. The things that you hate about yourself when you're in junior high and high school that, you know, someone listening to this is like, I don't know, you know, I wish that I didn't have, you know, wiry red hair. Why God, why? What does that Make, make your pain your purpose? then get really, really good. Lynn manuel Miranda talks about this, like pick your lane and stay in your lane until the end. Then at some point the lane will broaden. Specificity then becomes universal.
0: What about for you, Jordan, what advice would you have for someone who wants to work in news? I think you could
2: attest to this as a director as well, is that you first need to have a strong grasp on the fundamentals and then just work your butt off. Understand what a good framing of a shot looks like, understand the best way to tell a story and whatever your medium is,
1: and then pursue
2: it. My biggest regret, if I could do a throwback, was not being more specific about what I wanted to do. When I first got to New York City, and the doors were opening for me, small doors at the time, but doors no less that kept me in New York City. I was so overwhelmed that I was here and that people were paying me to work in the greatest city in the world that I wasn't incredibly clear about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. So I think I could have been a lot more specific early on and saying, that right there is exactly what I want to do. But I think for somebody that wants to work in television news, you kind of have to, at some point, become a junkie about it and watch a lot of TV, watch a lot of news, get familiar with camera framings, when people use steady cam versus when they use a jib try to break in in a local market. So many people start off in their local market, whether it's Amarillo, Texas, or Des Moines, Iowa. And so many people take small jumps, small jumps to bigger market, to bigger market before you know it, you're in New York City. And so that's what a lot of people do. I went a completely bonkers route, and I got an internship, and I just refused to go away. I was like, I'm not moving back to Texas. I'm staying in New York
0: so somebody's going to give me a job eventually. And thankfully they did. At the end of your lives, what kind of legacy would you like to leave behind?
1: We've moved into a new home and currently in our office, we have a lot of representation of our work. Hmm. And we have decided that all of our show posters, all of Jordan's New York Emmy nominations, all of this stuff is going to stay in this room. We're not going to put it in the hall or the living room, or in a bedroom, it's going to stay here because there's one section of our life that's about work. But the other sections of our life are about commitment to family, to faith, to our prayer over our son, is that he would be a fulcrum of wisdom. That's a, I actually have it in calligraphy and framed. I think perhaps the way that we're laying out our house, hopefully is indicative of how we want our legacy to go which is, yeah, work was a, was a part of our lives and we loved it and, and we're thankful deeply for it. But it's not the whole story. I want our family tree to be one where people are winsome and bold because they are secure in the fact that they are loved by their family and loved by an eternal God. And whatever path they choose for their career, that's, that's fine. May they use their gifts.
2: I think you'd want to be a multi- Tony nominee, not just single Tony nominee. Okay, sure, fine. <laughs> yeah. Of course. No, sorry, did I bring you out of the clouds? Right. Um, Legacy okay. with these shelf would have less books and more awards on them. <laughs> no, we're, we're so good at compartmentalizing things. If we were to blur the lines of the compartmentalization, I think we'd want to be known among our family, friends, and coworkers as people who were loving, people who would, do anything for a quick buck? A quick buck. What do you want on your tombstone? Cheese and pepperoni. You remember that old commercial? I sure do. It's just one of those things. I mean, especially coming out of a pandemic where so many people lost loved ones and you think about what's gonna be said at your eulogy. I mean honestly, I I hope no one really talks too much about my work at my eulogy. That would be a good legacy to leave behind is that people didn't talk about the stuff I directed as much as they talked about the way I made them feel and the relationships that I invested in.
1: Yeah. Deep stuff.
0: Well, thank you so much for being my guests, Jordan and Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing about your lives and your journeys and being so open about what you've been through and all the ups and downs. Yeah. Thank you for asking If you work in entertainment, be sure to check out the courses and other resources available at NavigatingHollywood.org. There are courses for pre-marriage and marriage and the Alpha Hollywood course, which gives entertainment professionals the chance to explore the most important questions of life. You can find out more at NavigatingHollywood.org. If you use the invitation code podcast, the courses are complimentary. Please follow us and leave us a review so others can discover this podcast. You can find out more about our other shows. You can read transcripts and see links and more at navigatinghollywood.org. I look forward to being with you next time.